learning from mistakes can be an important part of life, uh, whether you're, they're your own mistakes or someone else's mistakes. Seeing what not to do can often be as helpful as seeing what to do. Uh, Thomas Edison, who invented the light bulb, evidently he had over 10,000 failed experiments before he finally had success. And when he was asked about it, Edison famously said, I have not failed 10,000 times. I have successfully discovered 10,000 ways to not make a light bulb. (laughs) He saw the positive side of learning from mistakes. Now, friends, in this morning's passage, we're going to learn from a Corinthian mistake. In one sense, that's nothing new. Uh, Chapters 1 to 10, we've already looked at earlier this year, and they've already been full of mistakes. The poor old Corinthian church would probably have to be one of the most mixed up, confused churches in the New Testament. But to put a positive Thomas Edison sort of spin on things, that makes the Corinthian church a great church for us to learn things from as we get to learn from their mistakes. What do we learn this morning? Well, to see that, we firstly need to see what their mistake is. Verse 20 takes us to the heart of the matter. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Now, this mention of the Lord's supper... We need to take our time here uh, because the Lord's Supper seems to be one of those issues that lots of people feel very strongly over and amongst Christians there are a lot of ideas out there floating around which are simply not in the Bible. So just for a bit of perspective on the topic, let's just consider the raw data. Here in today's passage is the only use in the entire Bible of the phrase the Lord's Supper. Verse 20 is the only time the phrase is ever used. More than that, 1 Corinthians is the only letter in the New Testament where anything vaguely like this is mentioned. Which in itself is a little curious. The Corinthian church is the only New Testament church where there is any direct evidence of them having anything that might be considered called the Lord's Supper. And it is also the most mixed up, confused church in the Bible. Bottom line, apart from the gospel accounts of Jesus' last meal, which we'll see in a minute might relate to this, and a fleeting reference to a cup of thanksgiving in the previous chapter, here in this morning's passage is effectively the entire New Testament teaching on the Lord's Supper. If someone wants to tell you something about the Lord's Supper, but you can't see it in this passage... You need to be a little sceptical because this passage is about as good as it gets for explaining what it is. So, what actually is this Lord's Supper which the Corinthian church used to have? Well, it could simply be a reference to church meals in general. Our translations make it sound like a special meal with a title because it's given capital letters as if it's a proper noun. There are no capitals in the original. And so in verse 20, Paul might be simply making the point that the Corinthian church dinners aren't particularly Christian meals because of the way they're behaving. They aren't suppers of the Lord in that sense, which is what the passage technically says. However, given that in the next paragraph, Paul goes on to remind them of the meal which Jesus had the night before he was crucified, 
The Lord's Supper sounds like it might be a meal which the Corinthian church were reenacting in, in which the Corinthian church were reenacting in some way Jesus' last meal with his disciples. And please notice that it's a meal. That's why there's references to people getting hungry and other people getting drunk. It's because a full-on meal is happening here. And so in that respect, it's clearly different to what we just had a little moment ago with communion. If that was a meal, everyone's going to go hungry with that little bit of bread and no one's going to get drunk on those little cups. What's going on in Corinth is a full-blown meal. The Corinthian mistake, however, is that they are acting it out so selfishly that it's contributing to divisions within the church. Verse 21, again. As you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. A friend once told me of an incident in his church family where a Bible study group went out together to a restaurant one night. It was a BYO restaurant and there were about three or four people in the group who were really into wine and they all brought along these really expensive top quality bottles of wine which they had gotten from their wine club. And these three or four people all proceeded to sit up one end of the table and they spent the entire night speaking knowingly about vintages and grapes and all these very sophisticated wine type things and never once did they offer their expensive wine to anyone else in the group. They just stayed up that end of the table in this sort of self-absorbed little cliche. And an outing which should have unified the Bible study group ended up dividing the group. Sounds like that's the sort of thing that's happening here in Corinth. Some are getting there early. They're making a beeline for the table. They're filling up their plates without thinking of anyone else who by the time they get to the table, most of the food's gone. Some of them are even getting drunk and going a bit silly. Paul's correction of this sort of behaviour takes three main steps. He explains a truth, he applies a truth, and then he pulls together a conclusion. If you've got an NIV, you'll actually see that logic flow by looking at the first words of each new paragraph. Verse 23 starts with for, verse 27 starts with therefore, finally verse 33 starts with so then. For, therefore, so then. A truth explained, a truth applied, and finally a conclusion pulled together. Here's the truth explained. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he'd given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul here is reminding them of Jesus' last meal with his disciples. The meal that it sounds like they're trying to reenact. And he's reminding them that at that original meal, Jesus told his disciples that they were to have that meal in remembrance of him. And we're told that three times, verse 24, 25, 26. They all point out that it's to be done in remembrance of Jesus. And that repetition is no doubt because this was an incredibly provocative thing for Jesus to say. Because Jesus' last meal wasn't just any meal, it was a Passover meal. 
This was the meal where God had commanded the Israelites to have every year so as to remember how God had rescued them from Egypt. Many of you know the account, I'm sure, from the book of Exodus about how God struck down the firstborn of all the Egyptians, but God told the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb, a Passover lamb, in the place of their firstborn, and because they did that, God's judgment passed over the homes of the Israelites, and Israel was miraculously freed from slavery. And each year at the Passover feast, Israel celebrated and commemorated this phenomenal rescue, a rescue that was their defining moment as a nation. Here was that moment in history where they were effectively became God's nation as opposed to a bunch of sort of slaves in bondage. And the night before he was crucified, Jesus said to his disciples, look, from now on, don't bother thinking about Israel's rescue from Egypt. I'm more important. Remember me. That's an extraordinary thing for Jesus to have said. And with those words still ringing in his disciples' ears, the very next day Jesus was nailed on the cross. And the Old Testament Passover really was completely eclipsed in an extraordinary manner. Because unlike Israel in the Old Testament who were rescued from Egyptian slavery through the sacrifice of a lamb in their place, you and I get to be rescued from slavery to sin through the sacrifice of God's own son in our place. And what Jesus does to the Old Testament Passover is phenomenal. He takes it to a whole new level and so he tells his disciples to now eat the Passover in remembrance of him. In remembrance of the rescue of sin which Jesus has achieved for his people. In remembrance of this wonderful rescue which completely surpasses, blows the Old Testament Passover out of the water, eat, drink now... In remembrance of me, he says. And that's the truth Paul wants to drum home to the Corinthians. That if they're going to try and reenact Jesus' last meal somehow, it's meant to be all about Jesus. It's meant to be about remembering him until he comes again. And having explained that truth, he now goes on to apply it to what the Corinthians are getting up to. Before we get to that, though, before we get to the truth applied, let me make two brief asides here. Both are tangents completely to the logic flow, but bear with me. I raise them because the Lord's Supper is one of those topics that just seems to generate so much carry-on baggage. Aside one, please notice that what Paul is saying here is very different to what the Roman Catholic Church does with the Lord's Supper. In the hands of the Roman Catholic Church, the Lord's Supper becomes something we have to do in order to be fully saved. That's because they say the bread and the wine actually turns into the real blood and, bread, uh, and body of Jesus Christ. And so the Lord's Supper effectively becomes a re-sacrifice of Jesus all over again by the priests. Now you've got to work pretty hard to see that sort of stuff in this passage. In fact, the whole idea of Jesus needing to be continually re-sacrificed over and over again by priests, that is completely unbiblical and it undermines the once-for-all nature of Jesus' death on the cross. Verse 24 does not say, do this in re-sacrifice of me. It simply says, do this in remembrance of me. 
The Lord's Supper is not something you have to do in order to be a Christian. It's something Christians do so as to remember how we're saved in the first place. We're saved by the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, a sacrifice in our place, a sacrifice so we could be forgiven and reconciled to God, a sacrifice remembered when we have the Lord's Supper. A second aside. One of the lovely things about DPC is that we have heaps of people in our church family from differing backgrounds. Uh, Baptist backgrounds, Anglican backgrounds, Brethren backgrounds. I think we've even got a few from Prezi backgrounds. It's terrific because it testifies to the fact that our solidarity is in Jesus Christ and not which denominational club we've happened to grow up in. But different denominations do have their different traditions and so people sometimes say to me, well, how come DPC only has communion once a quarter? I'm used to having it every week or I'm used to having it every month or whatever it is. Please notice, the passage says nothing about how often the Corinthians were doing this. The passage says nothing about how often they should have been doing this. The passage says nothing about whether anyone else other than the Corinthians should be doing this. I personally think you could mount a pretty good case for only having the Lord's Supper once a year on the evening before Good Friday. I'm thinking that would be a pretty good way of remembering Jesus' last meal, his sacrifice for us, and his fulfilment of the Passover. But that's me personally. Here at DPC, we have communion once a quarter. The Prezi denomination doesn't specify how often you've got to have it. The session thinks that once a quarter keeps a balance of keeping it special, but not more special than it really is. If you are used to do something different, I'm sorry about that. Please at least be aware that the Bible doesn't actually say anything about how often it should be. And remember, 1 Corinthians is the only letter it's even mentioned in. We're off topic. The big flow in the logic of this passage is that Paul is explaining the truth that Jesus' last meal was all about Jesus. He now applies that truth so as to make the point that by degrading their Lord's Supper, they are in fact degrading the Lord himself. Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now I want you to appreciate that logic. The Lord's Supper is meant to be all about Jesus. It's meant to be remembering, it would seem, his last meal. So dishonouring it is the same as dishonouring Jesus himself. I mean, imagine if at an Anzic Day dawn service, uh, imagine people laughing and joking and getting drunk. There would be outrage. It would be an insult to our diggers, we'd say. Same thought here. They're having a meal which is meant to be all about Jesus, but the way they are having the meal is an insult to Jesus himself. But here's the thing. Here's the big point in the logic that we need to be straight on. How were the Corinthians eating and drinking in an unworthy way? What exactly are they doing wrong? It's not that they're not Christians. It's not that they haven't done confirmation classes. It's not that they're too young and so they shouldn't be having communion because they're not old enough. The unworthy manner of the Corinthians is the greedy, selfish way in which they are having their meals together. Their unworthy manner is, verse 22, despising the church of God and humiliating those who have nothing. Their unworthy manner is treating their church family with contempt and their brothers and sisters in Christ with disregard. 
Verse 29. A man ought to examine himself. And if you haven't not following this, this will pay to look at the verses. Verse 28. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, if you were following in your NIV Bible, if you've got one of them, you would have noticed that I left out the words of the Lord in verse 28. They're not in the original, and the NIV confuses things by putting them in there. Because in verse 29, when Paul says, for if anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body, he's saying if anyone eats and drinks without recognising the church, which he's already talked about and referred to as the body in the previous chapter. In other words, what Paul is saying in verse 29 is that whenever they have their meals in a way that disregards their church family, they are bringing judgment on themselves. Verse 30. That's why many of you are sick, weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we wouldn't come under judgment. Now those verses really ought to pull us up here. Paul, think about it, Paul is directly attributing sickness and death, falling asleep, within the Corinthian church to their disregard of each other. He's directly attributing death and sickness to their despising the church of God and their humiliating those of who have nothing. In our ears, uh, that, that seems such an over-the-top thing to say. Yet it ought not to surprise us at all. Remember the incident of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? Remember them? They were the two that were, were struck dead. Do you remember why they were struck dead? For lying to their church family so as to make themselves look good. Remember when Saul got stopped by Jesus on the road to Damascus? He'd been persecuting the church. He'd been persecuting the church. And Jesus pulled him up and said, Saul, Saul, why, why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes it very personally how we treat a church family, which is exactly what this passage is about. So often this passage is used to argue the importance of the Lord's Supper. It's actually all about the importance of a church family. Which is why in Paul's conclusion in verse 33, Paul's conclusion to this passage is not to run some confirmation classes so as to get people to understand how special the Lord's Supper is. Paul's conclusion is start treating the other people in your church better. Paul's conclusion is Wait for one another when you have a meal together. Start treating each other properly and graciously. Start taking precautions so that you won't be tempted to mistreat each other. Verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, you should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. Friends, let me pull the threads together. The Corinthian church are getting together for meals. And it would seem that at least some of the meals are to reenact the Passover meal which Jesus had the night before he was crucified. Their mistake is that they are having meals in such an appalling way that it is contributing to divisions within the church. They are treating each other selfishly and with contempt. And that sort of behaviour is so outrageous that Paul says it dishonours the very memory of Jesus And in fact, it not only dishonours Jesus, it is flirting with danger. For Jesus takes very seriously how we treat his church. And in the context of this passage, that is the lesson 
we need to take to heart this morning. Jesus takes it very seriously how you treat his church. How you treat this church. Have a look around the room. You treat this church too casually. You treat this church selfishly and with contempt. You try and use the other people here for your own advantage. You selfishly ignore them and, uh, and despise them. You cause division and trouble here. And you will be in a lot of trouble with the risen Christ. Sure, you may not drop dead or get sick like some of the Corinthians did. But there will be a day when you will have to face the risen Christ and he will, take, he will have taken it very, very personally if you have not treated early church well. That's the lesson we need to learn from the Corinthian mistake. I'll pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of being in your family. Help us to see our church family through your eyes. Help us to value one another as you value us. Father, thank you that it is only by your grace that we're able to be family. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus in our place that we've remembered and celebrated earlier on. And Father, we pray that as a church family, we would treat each other graciously, lovingly, as precious members, as you indeed have treated us. Amen.